Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. My guest on the podcast today is Eric Peters, the founder and CIO of One River Asset Management. Beginning his career in Chicago trading corn futures in the late 80s, Eric moved into the sharp, elbowed world of bond futures trading on the CBOT and then went to a bank, prop trading rates and derivatives through the 1990s. His perspective on the ERM crisis in 92 and the bond market massacre in 94 provides significant insight on the way in which policy frameworks invite risk-taking that can ultimately lead to market instability. Post the 2008 crisis, banks aren't the same source of danger as they were, but new potential flashpoints exist, and as the central banks pull away the guardrails, Eric sees a long period of adjustment to a higher volatility regime. As this new era of uncertainty is upon us, among the risks that institutional portfolios are poorly prepared for is an unexpected rise in inflation. Now, my conversation with Eric Peters. Eric, welcome to the Alpha Exchange. Thanks, Dean. Nice to be here. Great to have you and a lot of interesting things for us to talk about today. I always like to get started and try to learn a little bit more about your background and specifically how you got focused on on the investment industry and, and really specifically on the macro component of your thought process and walk us through some of your career and how you came to start One River. Sure. You know, when I was in college, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. And it became a bit of an issue because I was coming to senior year and I just was pretty lost. And I, you know, I'd seen people on Wall Street and it looked interesting from afar, but I saw people hopping on trains and commuting and it just wasn't, it just didn't seem like it was my speed at all. So I decided that I would just go out and interview people. And so I, I set up meetings with someone in commercial real estate in international shipping, movie business. And I, I just sat down with them. So like, just like you and I are sitting down right now, I sat down with a guy who was in international shipping and he said, you know what? It's interesting that you're thinking about my industry. It's filled with gangsters and mm. you know, you just, like, you don't <laughs> want to, you don't want to do, you're going to find yourself waking up in the middle of the night, worrying about your ship or whatever it was. And I'm like, all right, yeah. fair enough. I went and I spoke with a guy in commercial real estate and his life just seemed so boring to me. You know, he just, he, he was a very wealthy guy, but you know, he just talked about, I buy a building and then I, you know, I refinance it and I try to increase rents and it just, it seemed profoundly uninteresting to me. The movie business, it seemed very random. The outcomes are really random. So, you know, it's obviously sexy when you're a, when you're a college kid and you kind of look at it and I went to some movie sets and then, you know, I try to get a feel for it. And it wasn't clear to me that there was any connection between how hard you worked and the, you know, and the outcome. Right. And I kind of looked at that and just said, wow, you know, maybe I'll be holding a light 30 years or something like that. <laughs> and then a good friend of mine, his dad was a trader out in Chicago, a very successful trader off the floor, was in the grain market in the 1970s and did some of the first, brokered some of the first deals with the, the Russians and for grain. But he was a trader, an investor, and had a nice business. And I, I went and I sat with him for an afternoon. And I watched what he, you know, he explained what he was doing. And I was pretty quiet. And I kept looking at his P&L. And basically, by the, by the close of the day, he lost the equivalent of, of a whole year of my college tuition. 
and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so he said, so what do you think? And, you know, I was, I was pretty sheepish about it. I said, well, I, I don't know. What do you think? Uh, how did it go today? He said, it went fine. And he said, what are you looking at? I said, I was looking at your, your P&L. You lost as much money as my entire college tuition. And I said, what did you do wrong? And he said, I didn't do anything wrong. I said, well, then why did you lose so much money? And he's like, he's like, you just don't understand. It's, you know, there's a, you need to follow process and you don't always know what the result will be. But if you do the right thing time and time again, you'll end up doing extremely well. Right. And I just, I knew at that point that I wanted to be in the, I didn't even know what the business was, finance, trading, but that's what I wanted to do. And I actually had, I'd gone through the interview process for Wall Street and, you know, variety of different things just because that's what you did when you were at my college. And I'd gotten into programs like that, but I just decided at that point, I said, you know what, I'm just going to go to Chicago and figure out what to do. And I'd made some money with some businesses in college. And I figured if this guy had spent his whole career and was as successful as he was and could still lose that much money in a day and feel like he was doing the right thing that I just would never be bored. Right. That was it. it you know, it was, it was like, okay, it's obviously very difficult and challenging. And I, I was a college athlete. I, you know, it seemed like a sport really. And that was what I wanted to play. So I just packed, I packed up and I went to Chicago. What was your, in Chicago, in terms of the starting point, what position, what asset class, what was your, what was your focus on in, in, when you first began? So I cobbled uh, a little bit of money together from my my college businesses. I was always, you know, somewhat entrepreneurial. I bought a seat on the Midam Commodity Exchange, which I don't remember. It it was the exchange where people traded after hours and odd lots, basically. I may have spent seven grand on the seat or something like that and put my money into an account. And I, I went to trade corn the first day because I was told that you'd lose the least amount of money trading corn. <laughs> okay. So, and I was, a, you know, as a finance economics major, I'd never seen corn before. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. But when we went through the training program, so, you know, and if, if you don't know Chicago, you, you probably wouldn't appreciate this, but they would just have so many people coming through these orientation programs and everyone would rent a seat or buy a seat. And it was pretty stark in the sense that you were in a room and you'd take these tests and the, the person speaking and trying to warn you away from doing reckless things would say, you know, in a year, 90% of you're going to be gone. And so, you know, I really went into it recognizing I knew nothing. And so, I wanted to figure out how to lose as little as possible and corn was the place. So, right. But pretty quickly, I moved to into bonds, you know, okay. within a few months. And so, so you started with this soft commodity, so to speak. Yep. Trading is weather important and, and sort of reports on crop development. Is there a lot of technicals that go into that? And was it just futures that you were, were, were focused futures. on? Futures and some options too. Okay. There was, there was very little customer flow. So, you really kind of, you know, I grew up trading in a truly a zero-sum game where you're just in a small pit with people and you knew when you bought you know, hopefully you're going to make money, but right. someone else is going to lose money sure. and, you know, sure. and vice versa. I was mostly technical. I, I concluded pretty early on that, and I would read research, uh, the fundamental research, but I concluded pretty early on that you just couldn't cover the the breadth of markets. And I, I liked looking at lots of different markets mm -hmm. and there would be no way that I could gain an advantage studying the fundamentals of corn. Right. <laughs> you know, but 
But again, pretty quickly, I moved to the bond market and we had currency futures there as well. Okay. So CBOT so, bond futures? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we were in the CBOT. Yep. We were in a little little side floor. And so it, after that market would close, all the big traders from the main pit would come and stand in the pit next to you and you'd trade after after hours. So there were, you know, there were times sure. of lots of excitement, but most of the time we were sitting there looking at prices that were generated from the board of trade and we were kind of trading off of them. Right. So it was pretty cutthroat trading. Your time on the floor at mm-hmm. the CBOT, what when was that? 89 to 91. 89 to 91. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. a little bit of disruption during that time period. You had the, we're post crash. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're post crash. You had a couple of things. I remember, I want to say it was 89 with the, was the United Airlines failed LBO and that created a sort of mini crash in the S&P, which I was. assume was, yeah. you know, impactful to the bond market. Yeah. Tell us about, I've been thinking a lot about the 94 episode, tequila yeah. crisis and and the bond market massacre, as some people call it, with Greenspan's, the tightening that he did, which was very unanticipated by the market, even though he tried to tell folks, here's what's happening. And I, you know, I'd done some studying of the Orange County debacle, you know, the leveraged inverse floaters and so forth. What, what was sort of some of the action in the early 90s that you recall from the, from the bond market? So I spent two years in Chicago and was persuaded to go to Wall Street and join Lehman. Okay. So I was at a big bond shop at, during the period that you're, you're talking about. And so I was a prop trader during that period. So I'd, I, I spent a year in New York in 91. They moved me to London just in time for the ERM blow up mm. or debacle or opportunity. We, we, yeah, it was a really exciting period in, in my career. And then obviously 94 came along. And it was a really fascinating, it was a fascinating period. I saw some unbelievable losses and gains during the ERM crisis, which is, you know, more kind of 92. Mm. And we'd had the recession that impacted everyone, you know, quite a bit, which led to the really low and persistently low interest rates, which set up the 94 bond crash. And what was, you know, you're a young guy, you don't, you don't have any context for, for any of these moves. And that can be a really, that can be a real advantage, by the way. So, in in the ERM crisis, it was an enormous advantage for me that I just had no context for these moves. So, for instance, I was trading the Swedish T-bills at the time and they raised in- overnight interest rates to 500%. Wow. Not by 500%. You know, they overnight rates went to 500%. Right. And the French hiked rates to 50%. And so, you know, if you, if you have no context for moves and, you know, probably less fear than you do it at our age, you kind of look at a market with with baby eyes and you say, well, you know, if the equivalent of your dollar futures fell 300 ticks yesterday, why couldn't it fall another 300 ticks? You know, there's no, you, you weren't necessarily grounded to this idea of mean reversion and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a great period to not be bound by thoughts of mean reversion. But 94 was, was obviously different from the ERM crisis, but it was similar and it was similar to a lot of crises in the sense that People create a mental framework for the world and then they adopt investment strategies to capitalize on that. And as those work, they gain more and more confidence and the returns that they can earn decline in essence. And so, but because their confidence is increased, they lever more and more. And so you'll see that pattern preceding any crisis, really. Right. But in 94, the framework that people had was that interest rates were going to stay 
low forever, really. And so the leverage that was built up then, at least the leverage that I really saw at the floor of Lehman was in the structured note market. And so what, what people would do is you'd have salespeople that were dealing with, I'm going to make it up, but Dutch pensions, <laughs> I'm not, actually not making it up, and various banks that were not terribly sophisticated, but I'm sure were compensated based on what types of yields they could generate in returns and what, whatever. And so they just started buying because yields were so low and it's, you know, they're obviously a lot lower now, but at the time they were incredibly low, 3%. And people thought, you know, if they're going to be here forever, I got to figure out how to make more money. And the time a structured note would pay you an incremental yield, let's, let's say an extra 5%, as long as Fed funds rates didn't move 50 basis points higher or lower over the next year. And, you know, as more and more money flowed into that, those ranges compressed further and further. And I remember in the beginning of, of 94, the economy had clearly been warming up and heating up, but we had this blowout jobs number. And I remember looking at the guy next to me on the desk and said, that's, you know, that's something pretty extraordinary. And that, and then just all hell broke loose. So as you, as you describe that situation of, you know, one thinking something's going to be sustainable forever and, and sort of the confirmation bias of it actually happening for an extended period of time. And then I think what you were saying is there was a lot of optionality sold Right, so a lot of these inverse notes and floaters and so forth uh, yep. effectively sold optionality to the banks at pretty probably sub market rates. Yeah, the Orange County one is fascinating. You know, you get this guy who's getting he's sort of viewed as a a genius. This uh, Robert Citron and this vehicle that he had is a, an interesting vehicle in the sense that other counties are giving him money to manage as well, and he's putting tremendous amounts of leverage on with these, you know, hold to maturity instruments and then repoing them to get more leverage and feels like just got marked out of it. And what's so interesting is that, you know, this wasn't an age of email. It was, they didn't really have email. Yeah. And so what I've read one of the books on this meltdown from Orange County. And, and one of the things that happened was the Merrill salesperson who was very active with Citron, their risk department started looking more closely at the trades and then they were sending him memos saying, we want to make sure you know that you know your duration is not three, it's actually gigantic, right? Because you've got so much leverage and there's two times and those types of things. Really an amazing situation. I wanted to go back to, to ERM because I hadn't thought too much about that, but, but Drucker Miller's been doing the rounds. He just put that op-ed piece out with, with Kevin Warsh on suggesting the Fed should basically go slow from here. Right. But ERM's so interesting. I would, thought you might comment on this. It was a developed market country, the Bank of England, effectively crying no moss, right? They had something that was viewed as, ultimately became viewed as just unsustainable, right? Are there equivalents to that? As you sort of think back in the last 20 or 30 years where a government construct of some kind of financial construct, you know, is there something like that that this reminds you of where you know market forces push so far one way where even a developed country and I'm not talking about Iceland abandoning the krona I mean a developed country is there something like that 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 we've seen either in FX or in some some other asset class where the, the government you know sort of unenforces something that they'd been enforced maybe it's the Swiss franc right from or was it early 16 is that maybe an example it's an example, but it's just much more limited, yeah. right? 
the, uh, you know, the ERM was was an interesting construction, and you understood why it was put in place. It made some sense, but it had, you know, it had this like all these things. Do they have a reflexive feature to them? Mm. And so, you know, Soros used that to his advantage when it was ready to to blow apart, but. You basically you tried to set currency exchange rates in a, a really stable way, and in a sense, hoped that everything else would fall into line, and that you know different policymakers and governments would adopt the right policies to keep things in line. In some sense, it was you know it's like the euro today, except it was looser and in, in, in that it, it could be broken apart more easily, and so. It's not terribly different from the euro today, though, in, in certain respects, right? right? You know, you, you know, you kind of everyone locks themselves in a, an exchange rate regime, and then you just you hope and pray that people make the right decisions to make sure that the economies are you know reasonably well synced up and can can handle the fact that you're all using a, you know a, an exchange rate that's that's stable, right? But what happens? So you know, that's the economic side of it. Then there's the market side of it, and the market side of it is that. Everyone's looking to make a buck, and if you understand what the rules of a game are, you, you start playing it. And in the case of the ERM, people looked for all kinds of ways to earn carry by betting that this system would remain stable. But once the you know once the the kind of the economic once economies diverged far enough and inflation rates diverged far enough, which inevitably they did, it created real stresses on the system. And so you ended up with really large pools of capital that were that were betting that the system would remain intact. And like anything, once you have enough people all betting the same way and they're levered, they become extremely vulnerable and the right. system becomes fragile. And yes. so, you know, I think Soros and a number of others did a you know, recognize that at the right time. By the way, there were plenty of people that recognized that too early and, you know, would bet when Exchange rates would go up against certain bands. You know, they would bet that it would break out and it wouldn't work. So it, it you know, wasn't. It certainly wasn't an easy bet to make. But you know, he did a, a terrific job in making it the right time and the right, right size. It sort of reminds me of that. There was no shortage of people betting against housing or subprime securitized paper in two thousand four, five, six. And Paulson comes along and just not to take any credit away from him at all, but the timing couldn't have been any better. The yeah. sizing was tremendous, and and you know. It's sort of the equivalent of someone that got something right that a lot of other people had taken a shot at, and some were successful, but his timing and his sizing was yeah. just spot on. Yeah. There's always yeah. going to be someone who makes yeah. that bet, right, right? Yep. In, in the size that he made it. And you know, who knows if he'd done it a little too early or a little too late, certainly a little too early, you know, it could have just been bankrupt and you never would have heard sure, of him. Exactly. But, you know, exactly. it's, it's yeah. always going to happen. When you we know. think back in the 90s, you've got ERM, you've got the bond market massacre, you got the Asian contagion, LTCM, the Russian default. Uh, pretty strong decade for big, on. big macro unwinds. And what were sort of past the bond market meltdown in 94, you know, the next five years, how, how did uh, any, any sort of as you think back on either Asia in 97 or LTCM, obviously a lot of tremendous amount of swap spread movement through the LTCM unwind. My portion of it, I was in equity derivatives at Lehman. And- the movement higher and long dated equity vol was was nothing short of a gigantic squeeze. All of them, uh-huh. you know, just short, more Vega than you could have ever thought a fund mm-hmm. could be short. Mm-hmm. But of course, the swap spread widening was was a big part of that as well. Mm-hmm. What were just the last is is sort of the nineties got round out any 
things that you think back on that were truly impactful lessons that you learned from your own prop trading? You know, I think the 90s were this unique period, right? Because you had you had Greenspan in and I think the way to think about the 90s is to is to think about it through the lens of of Greenspan. So Greenspan took over from Volcker, you know, in the the late 80s and you know, he seemed he seemed to apply the same logic and thinking to each of these, you know, these series of crises that that came about. And you know, I think that the whole world watched that and just adopted those sets of behaviors. Certain, you know, the US has as a reserve currency the most latitude to make these big monetary policy decisions. Other countries, you know, weak countries can't do that or they they completely implode. But I think the 90s was that period where you had these crises and you had everyone begin to adopt reasonably similar responses and they became more and more powerful through time. And I think policymakers were probably believing that they were becoming more intelligent about how to to manage markets, you know, and, and I don't think it worked out terribly well for them. But I think that that's when I think about how those crises unfolded, that's what you had. And then as you, you know, once you got through the dot-com bubble and you had extremely low, you know, low rates again, I mean, you just, you kept pushing the, the boundary yeah. and you, but the bubbles, you know, because you had the series of crises during that period of time, those who got burned wanted to make decisions to try to prevent those. So, you know, Asian and global central banks looked at what happened in Asia and just said, I never want to be in that situation. So, a lot of dollars were accumulated and, you know, Greenspan was in a sense happy to supply those dollars. So, you kind of, with each one of those crises, you built up buffers that made them less likely to, you know, to appear certainly in the exact form. And then we ended up with, you know, the the monster right. bubble and, you know, in, in housing, which is, you know, in a way kind of the place that people least expected it. You saw all these crises in these small countries and far-flung places, but uh, U- U.S. housing is you, – you wouldn't have expected that right. would have been the, the bubble. Or certainly, it's, it's they wouldn't. It's interesting, the, the post-tech bubble unwind and this view that we were entering into this period of at least disinflation and, and maybe more foreboding deflation, and Greenspan was worried – and so the insurance policy seemed to be very, very low short end rates, incredibly steep curve. You point out in some of your some of your writing that you know, we've seen policymakers make just tremendous forecasting errors. That we should be humble by what we think is going to happen, even with the most data and all the PhDs. And one thing you point out is in the late 30s, the, the view that we were entering into a period of stagnation and disinflation, and then a couple of years later, as we entered war, 10 percent inflation. Right. Yeah. So. You know, sort of put that as shit happens, <laughs> right? <laughs> and with Greenspan, curious as you think about the period leading into the 2008 meltdown, what is that set of ingredients, and how do you weight, you know, the different inputs into how did we get there? Right? Was sort of we look back and we see some things that were again in hindsight, we're ten years in hindsight now, remarkably fragile, staring at us in the face. Our old firm, Lehman Brothers, its, it's CDS was trading at 20 basis points with a gigantic amount of leverage, illi- illiquid assets, and 
the most convex thing you could possibly own at the cheapest price we've ever saw. It's just such a paradox. Yeah. What's as you think about the period, let's say post the tech bubble leading into 07, how do you score the different inputs in terms of the being impactful for for getting us to where we ultimately got to? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Low interest rates are extremely powerful and the profit motive is extremely powerful and there's almost nothing more powerful in finance than the appearance of a one-way bet that works for a mm. while, right? And so in every cycle you see that the dominant investment strategy and I say dominant in you know, the the one that's performing the best becomes the dominant investment strategy and then it kind of attracts all the assets and self reinforces for a period of time, you know, until it it fails, right? And I guess what was just so remarkable about that period is that this reliance on on low rates and this growing confidence that the Fed had a lot of control over the real economy, it seemed to just line up perfectly behind housing and housing hadn't had a big crisis in a while. I mean, housing has had plenty of crises over the last hundred years, but it just hadn't in a while. And mm-hmm. so, I guess it was just its, it was its time. Right. But all the other things really fed, right? You had all the the different Asian and global central banks that wanted a lot of US paper. And so, you know, one of the interesting lenses through which I think you can almost look at the US housing crisis is there was so much demand for US paper globally and the Fed had kept rates so low and dollars abundant. People just needed, they needed places to put dollars. And, you know, lo and behold, the market created an amazing supply of assets for them to buy that were reasonably liquid, which were these mortgage bonds. And, you know, so each one of these things look, you know, look different. But I think all of those contributing forces, which were, you know, responses to previous crises where, you know, central banks wanted to accumulate dollars and Fed became ever more confident that it could control markets. And certainly all the policymakers never wanted to repeat the chaos of things like any of those other crises, but the ERM. Because I think, you know, central banks, when they lose control, it's it's extremely ugly. You know, that's the last time we really saw major central banks really lose control, I think, was the, was the ERM. Mm-hmm. You know, markets lost control in 08, but the, the central banks stepped in and there was a period of time where there was skepticism around their ability to, you know, to put a floor under things. But eventually, you know, and eventually wasn't measured in years. I mean, you know, it was eventually it was pretty clear that they were able to put a floor under things. But yeah, policymakers never want to really lose control. So I think all those things contributed to 08 becoming just such a massive crisis. Right, right. So your, your time at Lehman, when, when did that take you through? And then what was your next what was your next stop after, after Lehman? I was uh, Lehman till about 98, I think. And then ultimately, I, I ended up starting a it's a more of a distracting story. <laughs> I started a finance company during the dot com period, which is kind of an interesting company, and then spent about five years with that. Sold it in oh three or oh four, and then kind of reinserted myself back into actual you know, trading and investing, and then ultimately made my way to a hedge fund in California, where I spent four or five years, and that kind of took me through the the 08 crisis but we we really kind of got going right got seated in 
September of 08, you know, right, right as this was all right. unwinding, which was ironic in a way as Lehman was failing. But yeah, and so I've just been in hedge funds ever since. As 2007 was occurring and then into 2008, as you think about your the risk philosophy that you brought into that crisis and then the way in which it may have been shaped, influenced, you know, further substantiated by the crisis itself, what did you see going in? And, and when we think about September 2008, or I guess it was November of 08, VIX of 80, never seen things like that before. Yeah. Credit spreads, just yeah. n- never seen anything like this before. Yeah. You know, banks going under tarp, right? the kitchen sink of rescue facilities all conjured up out of thin air, some of which worked, but took a long time. Yeah. What was sort of, what was your experience through the crisis, both just observing the wheels falling off the bus and then just managing P&L and looking for opportunity and trying to avoid the landmines? I think, well, so I, I took a role at a hedge fund in, in Cali in 07 and the firm it was actually quite a large firm. It lasted, it survived seven months after, after I joined. So I was a PM there and it was one of the first firms that was consumed. It, it had a, a mortgage trading arm. It was one of the first firms that was consumed by that crisis, you know, pre Lehman, but early in the, the whole mortgage blow up. And that was, you know, it was, it was amazing really because it was my first glimpse into what hedge funds are able to do and how they're able to get leverage. And I wasn't really a tuna. I wasn't part of that, the mortgage group, but I, you know, could kind of see it from afar and the type of portfolio they had was, you know, levered at a, a reasonable rate for given the time when there was no volatility. And the moment there was a little bit of volatility, the, you know, the wheels came off and credit lines were pulled. So, you know, it was right in that, in that early period. And I, I felt like to me, it was just deja vu. You know, I, I, because I've grown up, I guess starting in in the commodity pits and then going through things like the ERM and these various crises, I've been really the opposite of a, a levered carry trader my whole life because I've just seen too many fiascos happen as a result of that. And I think that those will continue to happen. They just always will happen. And there'll be different tools to try to help mitigate the fallout and or there might be regulations and there are regulations to try to prevent that but you know that that's what happened so what you know is 0708 was unfolding it just seemed to me like it was going to be a rolling train wreck and i think housing was was a pretty obvious bubble but like all these you don't know when it's going to roll over but I, I saw a lot of the people in the same types of trades that i've seen in my whole career you know they convinced themselves that the world is going to look the same tomorrow as it did yesterday and they become extremely levered to that. It becomes the dominant investment strategy and then something changes and it's yeah. all over. One of the areas of the big short, the book that is described is a trader for Morgan Stanley, Howie Hubler, mm-hmm. who had the subprime trade very right. He owned protection, was paying out a decent amount and was waiting it out, but had a very large book. And ultimately, and this is... uh unfortunate decision for someone that had the trade right initially, but stepped back and said, you know, if I kind of sell off some of the, basically turn my put into a put spread and he sold super senior protection, wound up with like a one by 10 type put spread where you step back and as you're noting on the mortgage side, you just get to outcomes that are so far away from anything you've experienced before. So 
he sold a lot of super senior protection to finance this carry that he was burning through, waiting, yep. waiting, waiting. Yep. And ultimately, because this thing got so severe, he I think the number was $15 billion he lost after having had the trade right. And he just had this, sold this upper tranche protection in such size that when it got there, it just was nasty. Yeah. Yeah. That That's the, the California firm that I joined when I first went out there. It had a similar similar structure. It was a relative value trade. It was the right trade. It was long a few senior, you know, 3X the senior and short triple Bs and levered. Right. And it was, it did incredibly well in 2007. Okay. And then early 08 just, you know, just, just blew up. But that, it is always that way. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's amazing, you know, and, but I think the comp structures in, in the industry and just human behavior all conspire for those patterns to repeat. So that's a that's an interesting point you make around comp structures. You know, folks, the, the way in which people are motivated, right? Their decision-making process, selling optionality and getting paid now for something that might blow up later. The other thing you mentioned was on financing, get your financing pulled, right? Bear Stearns, just in a, in a couple of days, your repo lines are cut and that's it. Yeah. And- so my question is around the comp side of things because there's been a lot of Wall Street focus on how people are paid, right? Try to not give them so much optionality, hold back comp as a way of influencing behavior. And then on the repo side, the the funding side and the, the fragility that comes from funding every day overnight. When you, again, post-crisis, you step back and you look at the types of things that have been done. You mentioned Volcker Rule some of the leverage ratio initiatives from the Fed to try to reduce bank leverage, the way in which people are paid. Wall Street was the center of that storm in a lot of ways because Mm -hmm. the banks had so much leverage. When you step back and look at the kind of landscape of risks now, is it fixed well enough in your opinion? Do we just, we'll never know. But when you, when you look at the, the clampdown, so to speak, right, the reaction that we saw in 2010, 12 and so forth as Dodd-Frank was initiated, do you feel like these new regulations and new oversight, is it effective? And when you think about the banks themselves, are they a source of fragility in any way close to what they were? Are there hidden risks? Yeah. I think that the clampdown has been effective in addressing the last crisis, which is always the case or almost always the case. But if I think we've learned anything over the last, well, our entire career, it's that the market conspires to provide the narrative and the opportunity and the inputs to create outsized returns in some, you know, in something that attracts enough capital that creates another problem. And I don't, I think humans are just too creative to think that, you know, a handful of regulators or an army of regulators for that matter, responding to something that had seemed unimaginable and then actually occurred. Now that people are too creative to look at the new regulations that have been put in place to prevent that from reoccurring to not find something else to do and get themselves into trouble with it. It's just human nature. So, you know, when you look around the world or when I look around the world today, it's pretty clear that there are all kinds of different ways that leverage have, you know, and has, has popped up. And 
all kinds of I would call them misbehaviors that you know in games that people play. And I don't, you know, some of it's comp driven for sure. A lot of it's comp driven, but it's also I think driven by people's desire to want to believe in something. And so I don't know when you look at corporate buybacks. That seems to me like that's a real problem, right? And and it, it's something completely unanticipated. I would or I would say broadly unanticipated by policymakers when they adopted QE that all this liquidity would go into vast buybacks and not into capital investment, broadly speaking. But it's propelled a stock market that's probably made every single CEO and CFO who's decided to do buyback feel pretty smart and feel wealthy and their comp structure supports that. And they don't feel like they're being dumb because their shareholders in their minds have been rewarded. So it's it's not just all bad actors, but I think when you want to believe something badly enough, you can figure out, humans figure out how to believe it. And sometimes those things that they believe are awful. Sometimes they're wonderful, right. you know, and, and when it comes to finance and speculation, they tend to be things that can deliver enormous profits that are really outsized to what an economy should be able to deliver. Yeah. The rules of the game, so to speak, that the I would say the central banks are most responsible for setting up. They're creating the conditions of carry. And this last cycle has been such an interesting one in the low rates and low vol, right? We've never seen that coming together in the degree to which we've seen it here. Yeah. Before, I want to get a lot of your perspective on that. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the sovereign crisis in Europe, the one that you know really was a rolling crisis from 2010, I think, is really when things started. I remember the flash crash in 2010, and people were so confused because there was on TV riots in Greece, and you just didn't really know what was what was the proximate cause of this. But it really got going in 2011 and through 2012 probably the middle of it, Draghi, Scott is famous, whatever it takes, commentary. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on just developed market sovereign bonds being caught up in something that felt very reflexive at points in time. And they really didn't know how to put out the fire. At least they didn't have either the wherewithal or the maybe the right philosophy. I, I don't know. What, what's your, what are your thoughts thinking back on, on that period? The euro and that whole region is just so interesting to me. We could talk about it for you know long, long time, but specifically on this point, I think one of the big challenges that Europe has is it has you know it has a common currency and it just does not have a, a common you know budget basically. And when you think about what that really means, it kind of means that that Europe is on a gold standard. And so, financial professionals, all of us doing this, at this point, none of us have seen a gold standard. Right. You know what I mean? So, when, you know, I, th- I think that this this whole business requires a, you know, a decent amount of imagination, certainly if you're going to try to capture market inflections and things like that. And usually, when a big opportunity happens, it's because there's kind of a collective lack of imagination about kind of how things could look differently and or people are so incented to just bet on a continuation of a trend. And so, there was such a long trend in place. And I remember when it started, but that trend in place toward the narrowing of interest rate differentials across Europe. And it got to a point where they're just, you were paid virtually nothing 
incremental to invest in Italy relative to Germany. But it's just because, you know, that trend had been in place for so long and there was a lot of leverage behind it and, you know, and people made a lot of money and then it almost became kind of sleepy and it just became a kind of a common myth that all these bonds were the same because they had the same currency and they really weren't. Mm. So, you know, I think what, I think ultimately what happened is there are a lot of different ways, I guess, of looking at the crisis, but ultimately what happened is you had all these countries that had a common currency, but just didn't have the ability to print it. And so that's a, you know, that's a goal. That was what happened more frequently, you know, when you, when you had a a gold standard. I'm thinking back to the early part of 2011 and Trichet was the head of the ECB. I think he tightened policy in May or June of 2011. This is a, a hypothetical rhetorical type question. Do you think with different leadership at the helm, at the ECB front, do you think things would have been a lot different if there was a bit more of a, you know, Tim Geithner sort of kitchen sink philosophy, ask questions later, throw everything you can at putting out the fire? Because if you don't, it's going to be really, really difficult. Ask the questions on moral hazard later. Europe seemed to be very tepid in its response. They were, I don't want to say anti-market, but very skeptical of the short sellers on the euro. And they just didn't seem to have enough firepower either because they wanted to or or maybe just couldn't get organized. Do you think about it as a, a central banking mistake or is this was going to happen regardless of the philosophy that they approached it with? Well, I think that the Europeans make lots of central banking mistakes, but I always really admired the Bundesbank. Just their fiscal and monetary prudence is something that I just throughout my career I, I just I, adm- I admired the fact that they seem to take the position that look let's just kind of create honest money and then let the economy organize itself around the strength of of money but it's very different from the other Europeans Italy the Italians had kind of the the opposite view it's like well let's just let's play with money and then let's let people organize their businesses and wages around money that is less meaningful. Mm. And, and, and so, but I think the problem that the Europeans have always had internally is that they can't agree on how sound money should be. And so, the, the Germans basically worked with the French to just say, okay, we're going to control this and keep everyone, you know, everyone in line. But the, then the real issue is even if the Europeans can agree on what money should be in interest rates and how, how that all fits together, they have a problem because the global reserve currency is the dollar. And so, the Europeans have always been kind of caught between wanting to be austere in one way, but they can't be too austere if the US is going to you know, be run by people like Greenspan and Yellen and Bernanke. Mm-hmm. They just can't do it you know, because Europe is kind of chasing the US around. Right. If Europe were dominant, they could control the world. They could, they could set the tone and the US would have to follow. But so the so I think the Europeans often get themselves caught in that situation where they go, you know what, we don't want to be like the Americans, so we're going to hike rates, and it ends, you know, late in the cycle, and ends up being the wrong thing to do. So I expect, you know, I think there there's some cultural reasons for that. The Europeans don't want to have to be led by the Americans, but they, in monetary policy, they just right, are, and right. that leads them to making errors. Yeah. So we've seen some some pretty good vol in. in- Italian sovereigns this this year. Uh-huh. There's concerns around budget deficits and new leadership. France has had its riots. The European economy seems to be slowing. 
when you look at your mosaic of things that you're worried about or that can be a flashpoint for risk that is broadly uh, experienced by markets globally, where does Europe sit right now for you? Not terribly high. Okay. I think there's a very real chance that the euro looks that it just is a, a passing phase in Europe's history. But it doesn't you know, it doesn't seem like that time is upon us right now. And I, I think that they're they're just bigger conflicts and problems in the world. China, the relationship between China and the US is just much more interesting to me right now. I think you have to absolutely pay attention to Europe and I, I assume that they're gonna make it a whole series of monetary mistakes over the next mm-hmm. year or so. It's hard for me to imagine that having interest rates set at negative 40 basis points isn't an enormous monetary mistake right. already, you know, but it doesn't mean that it has to manifest immediately. I think the, the bigger conflict is just what's happening with the US and, and China right now. What are your thoughts on there? I think that probably the most remarkable thing that's happened in the US over the last two years of Trump's presidency, and there have been a lot of remarkable things that have happened. But I think the most remarkable thing has been that we went from, I would say, a broad American view on China as being, it's dependent, kind of dependent on who you asked. If you asked most people on the street, they would say, that's those are the guys that make my, you know, my flat screen TVs and my cheap toys and what I really care. And, you know, and a few people say, well, it's going to be China's century and no one really knew what that meant. Every business leader who I spoke to who did business in China would tell me off the record that they're incredibly frustrated because their IP is is stolen. They're forced to transfer IP through production agreements. Uh, you know, the list of angst that corporate CEOs had was extremely long, but they couldn't say anything about it. And then the military context that I had were also incredibly frustrated because they said, look, China is is building up the South China Sea and fortifying these islands and putting military hardware on there. And we're basically just ceding control of that whole area. And mm-hmm. that, that's a really big deal. So two years ago, that was kind of state of, of the play in the US. And in, in two short years, I would say that virtually every, well, every constituency in the US now views China as a rival, an adversary, you know, a real rising threat that needs to be contained. It's remarkable. You, mm. you, you know, when you step back and you think about history of conflict, I mean, you really don't want to get in a in a big fight with 330 million Americans. You, you just don't want to do it. And we, we're gearing ourselves up for a fight. When you look at the market disruption, let's call it, we were talking about earlier, it's not, VIX isn't at 50, we're falling, you know, consistently markets are, are losing value but it's not chaos as it were. How much attribution do you give to the you know, forward-looking uncertainty around China, maybe what companies are already reporting as, hey, this tariff uncertainty is impacting our, our business and our ability to conduct our strategic goals? What weight or an import do you ascribe the China conflict to, let's say, the last couple of months of, of market downturn? It's hard to assign something. It's part of the puzzle. Part of it. My experience has been in speaking with very large allocators, and I always find those conversations really interesting. But also other guys who who manage money directly for a living is most people really have a, a hard time making any investment decisions based on geopolitical 
concerns. And the, you know, the trade stuff kind of falls in between, right? You could talk about a hot conflict with China. And I think that there's, you know, there's, will be a, that'll be a risk that we'll face over the next decade. I have no idea how to time that or, or think sure. about it. I just know that it's, it's a much greater concern to me than, you know, the Germans and the Italians getting in a pissing match with each other. Right. But the, you know, the trade stuff I think fits within that. And I, I suspect that the market is beginning to come to terms with this idea that this China-US conflict is about a lot more than a trade deficit. And it's more of a, you know, how, how do you go from a unipolar world to a world where the US and China have to f- figure out how to how to live with each other and trade with each other. And, and so, it's probably going to be quite a bit more protracted. So, I, I'm sure that that affects asset prices. But the real thing to me that's affecting asset prices is just Look, we had 10 years of QE and unbelievably low rates and the US is getting out of that business or is desperately trying to get out of that business right now, even in the face of a president that's trying to tell the Fed to not get out of that business right now. But I mean, that that just shows you, by the way, how badly they want to get out of that business to give themselves more latitude in the next you know, downturn. And Europe is hopelessly stuck in this period. You talk, you talk to investment people in Europe and you go, where do you think overnight rates will be in Europe in a decade? And they literally can't even imagine they'll be they'll be anywhere further than fifty basis points either side of zero. Hmm. You know, so like Europe is stuck in its mess. Japan is kind of stuck. No, no one has latitude, right, to do anything other than really aggressive QE, or you know, print money and give it a like. There there aren't many levers left, and so I think now that I think the market's starting to to sense that from levels that were very overvalued. Do you think that the period going into this, the 2017 lowest realized volatility in the S&P since I want to say 1963, 50-something years, yeah. the VIX closed below 10, I want to say it was 52 times, and yet it was a great year to sell vol. We, we know the XIV. Yep. A lot of your thought process on markets pays, I think, careful attention to carry trades, the consumption of trades that continue to work that are done at increasingly maybe more fragile prices and then ultimately become part of the dramatic moves, right? Because there's a buildup along the way. Yeah. We've talked a little bit about low rates and low vol, Fed-induced, maybe other central banks are a part of it too. They're in the asset buying game even more so mm-hmm. <laughs> still. What are we seeing in 2018 in terms of, is it is it the reckoning of we brought asset prices to a certain level and as the Fed gets out of that game, is that what we're seeing now? And is this a precursor to just an ongoing process? Is there much more to come from your perspective? We never should think about a 2008 financial crisis as around the corner. It seems pretty a remarkable event, but there's plenty of ways for the VIX to get to 30 and 40. What's your severity meter look like as right. you sort of think about the, you know, the, the level of fragileness? It's been pretty remarkable that the VIX has stayed as muted as it has in the last couple months. It's interesting. You, n- you never know exactly why markets move, I think. But in, in terms of overall fragility, I think that there's a lot of built up fragility that's just not in the places that people are, are looking, which is generally the banks, just because that's what happened last time. I think that, you know, and, and consequently, I think that this whole market environment that we're in is, it has actually, I think it just has years to run. I think probably has you know a decade to run more. I know that sounds like a long time, and I'm not trying to 
predict the future that far out. It's more that I think we're at a we're in a a inflection point. So let's talk about the markets really quickly, and then and then the, the politics behind it. So 2017, you described really well. I would just describe it even more simply, which is that you had muted economic growth, you had extremely strong asset price returns, and you had an absolute collapse in volatility. Something that you know maybe you see twice in a century. And what do we have this year? We have extremely strong growth, economic growth relative to what would have been expected. And we have had very muted to negative asset price movements, right? And and vol has had some episodes. So when I look at that, it looks very much like a transition year to something that just looks very different. So mm. why, why would things look different? To me, it's almost, well, it just seems very obvious, but we've had a number of trends over the last few decades that have led us to to a point in, and you know, some of those have been increased globalization, deepening of global supply chains, wonderful technology that's connected the world, lowered costs, all, made it very easy for corporations, in, in essence, ultimately made it very easy for corporations to shift the the mix of the profits that went to capital relative to labor. And by the way, it's been enormously supported by government policy and central bank activity. All of these things kind of got us to this point where we've started to see some real political shifts, and not just in the US, but obviously in the US, in Europe, in the UK. I would say Abenomics is a version of this. They're just, you know, they've been stuck forever and they just said, we got to get someone in who's going to do something different. He came in and he's like, all right, let's do Abenomics. Now, it hasn't worked great. hasn't been a disaster. And they, you know, they probably will become more radical still at some point. You know, maybe they'll have to become less radical or maybe they'll have to tighten a little bit and then they'll have to really blow it. I don't know. But what I would say is that it seems extremely evident that we have gotten to a point where the economic pie was divided too unequally and people just said, I'm done with it. And so even you get a guy like Macron who comes in in France and he, you know, he wants to throw the love embrace around Germany and just say, you know, we're going to all unite. He tries to raise tax a little bit and the little guy just says, you know, forget it mm. with, you know, the yellow vest protest. So I think that the reason that we're at a point of fragility is we've just gotten to one of those you know, extremes of the arc where the pendulum will will swing back in the other direction. And, and, and consequently, the policy decisions that we made and the trends that that will spark will impact things like inflation, that will impact correlation. It's already increasing budget deficits. I mean, look at what the US is doing in terms of bond supply. So, as those things change, I think any investment strategy that was built for the last 10 years will face a whole new... It doesn't mean it will be terrible, but It'll face a whole new set of challenges as you look out over the next 10 years. You mentioned inflation, and I know that your team at One River is developing an inflation product. Yeah. It's been an asset class that's not delivered very much for, for very long periods of time. And in some ways, you know, w- one of my things I repeat to myself sometimes is the next crisis is going to be the one that's occurred longest ago. And we haven't seen anything resembling uncomfortable levels of inflation. And we certainly have convinced ourselves or guys like Larry Summers have convinced us that this is it forever. Yeah. You know, whether it's demographics, this concept of secular stagnation, technology, globalization, 
that's it. You're not, we can't in, increase inflation. Tell us about your product and sort of the way in which it's supposed to position within an institutional portfolio. Yeah. So I won't go and pitch our product too hard, but inflation has been extremely low and stable for a long period of time. So core PC has been kind of between 1% and 2% for the last 20 plus years in the US, a few months outside of that range. And so rightly, institutions have not considered it as a big driver of their investment process and decision-making. But if you think about what impacts the price of everything, securities included, and, and they have, they're very sensitive to inflation, it's a huge input that no one has had to consider. And so almost by definition, what you know is that every institutional portfolio in the world is de facto short inflation because they've and, and that that has not been the wrong thing to you know to be. But if you believe what I just described as, you know, the world being in an inflection point, and again to me that seems very obvious, if you want to remain short inflation, then you need to bet that all the political changes and the policy changes will just be dwarfed or will just be completely ineffective or disingenuous. In other words, leaders get in saying I'm going to help people and then they're, and they're not. And we'll, we'll continue to have inequality and or, or widening inequality. But if you believe those trends are in the process of shifting, you better not be short inflation. Inflation doesn't move in a straight line. It never has. It doesn't. Like any market, bounces around. But we think it will become more volatile. And so we're building a product that can capitalize on increasing volatility and inflation both up and down. So that's the goal. And it's in a it's focused on a whole category of securities where people, there, there just aren't many people that are extremely skilled in that. And we happen to have Lindsay Politi on our team who has spent her career dedicated to inflation trading and is you know an expert in that field. So I think that will be an important consideration for people in their broad portfolio construct, you know, to think about how inflation will impact it. And we've spoken with a lot of big investors about that. Our product is more of a bond replacement product that should thrive in a period where inflation starts becoming more volatile. But one of the, you mentioned the 1960s is a really interesting parallel that we see. And I like parallels, but I, I don't, I don't become wedded to them. But you mentioned that volatility was extremely low you know, in 2017, the last time was the 1960s, right? A lot of, there are a lot of parallels. So 1964, you had an environment in the US where the big angst of the day was people in the cities were making a lot more than people that were being left behind in the countryside. Amazing. You, know, you go back and look hmm. at the pay, that was the big issue. It's so the question was, how is government going to try to solve that? They did a huge tax cut in 1964. Actually, like all tax cuts, they went to the wealthiest people. But they thought, you know what? A little bit of trickle down. If this gets the economy going, we run hot for a while. It will draw more people in the city. They didn't know what the Phillips curve was because it wasn't invented. That it kind of was invented or named, you know, following that period. But they thought, let's run, you know, let's run the economy a little hot here for a while, and hopefully, we can suck people in, get people paid more money. So inflation had been very low and stable for a long period of time. Productivity is incredibly low too. And why was it low? It was low because you had huge productive capacity that came in from World War II. Corporations didn't invest for you know, a decade or so after that. And so you had really anemic productivity gains. And so you had a lot of the same problems that we had here. There's some different 
population dynamics and demographics and things like that. But there are a lot of parallels. And anyway, inflation started creeping up. The Fed was okay with being behind the curve, kind of like I think they will be now. They then made some rate hikes. The stock market had a deep dip. Rates had headed higher. They turned around and they said, oh, God, and they, they cut rates, but they were behind the, the inflation curve the whole way. And then, then once they did that, asset prices jumped up again, and, and then that was kind of it. Then it was just checkmate through the 1970s for nominal asset price returns. It was very volatile. Nominal prices didn't really go up. Real values went down a lot. And so you know, maybe, maybe there's, some, there's, there's something like that. But it's interesting when you see things like vol being so low. Or the trend trend strategies did did generally very muted gains in the 1960s, like they've been muted over the last decade, and then they had the best decade of the last 150 years in the 1970s. Mm. So I, I, you know, I, it seems it seems likely to me. Or maybe put it differently, I don't think you should bet on another decade like the one we just had. Right. Right. <laughs> like, why yeah, would you? Exactly. You, you mentioned inflation and the vulnerability that portfolios have to it. I would just concur in in my own conversations with pension funds and and you know state funds other sort of long-term investing types I'll hear very consistently we're exposed to a simultaneous and maybe this tr- brings in correlation as well a simultaneous increase in bond yields and fall in stock prices right and that inverse correlation has been a real characteristic uh, certainly of the post-crisis era it really started mo- maybe even post the the new century where stock and bond prices became so negatively correlated. And I think when something happens for long enough, it just becomes viewed as semi-permanent. And I'd say that an unwelcome increase or unexpected increase in inflation where the Fed's just chasing, boy, that that sounds like no one's real, really prepared for that. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the product sounds really interesting. Yeah. Well, we'll leave it there. Okay. Uh, I'm uh, grateful for your time, Eric. It's uh, great to have you and, and your insights across different cycles and, and present day as well. So thank you very much. Dean, that's great. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, Your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. (laughs) 